Get your entire podcast library hosted at the Podcaster Matrix. Podcastermatrix.com. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. High school sports. I have fond memories of my four years as a cross-country runner, the three years in track, and then my one protest year of playing high school tennis when my school changed coaches for our distance team in track. Just wasn't going to go out that sophomore year. I have lifelong friendships with several of those teammates, and those activities inspire me to be interested in running as a sport that I've been able to continue into my 50s now, or almost 50 at 49 now. We know the benefits of sport and physical activity, not only from a physical standpoint, but also the academic benefits we see in students who regularly are exercising or involved in sport. But are we dealing with high school sports the right way? Can we do better and provide opportunities and increase participation, especially with the pull of club and travel sports? Today on the podcast, we will talk about an effort by the Aspen Institute to reimagine school sports. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is John Solomon. John is an editorial director of the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program, whose mission is to convene leaders, facilitate dialogue, and inspire solutions that help sports serve the public interest. He is heavily involved in Project Play, the Sports and Societies Program leading initiative that focuses on building healthy communities through sports. Prior to the Aspen Institute, John was an award-winning sports journalist covering college football and NCAA issues with 20 national honors in his career. Most recently, he worked as a national college football reporter at CBSSports.com and was vice president of the Football Writers Association of America. John twice won National Associated Press Sports Editors Awards for investigative stories. He has regularly appeared as a commentator on national TV, radio, and podcasts. And welcome to our podcast, John. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited about our discussion today. I read through these reports with actually much interest because I I found some things that I I actually wasn't expecting to find. So I'm really looking forward to kind of expanding on this a little bit and letting our listeners know what exactly you guys are doing, because I think this could be some very interesting stuff, hopefully for obviously the future of school sports. So let's just talk to our listeners a little about what is Project Play. Tell us a little bit how it got started and what are the goals of Project Play? Yeah, absolutely. So Project Play got started in 2015. It's part of the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program, or a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. And Project Play's idea is to develop, apply, and share knowledge to help stakeholders build healthy communities through sports. With the big goal and mission being, how do we get more kids being physically active and playing sports because of all the benefits we know that you mentioned of of being physically active. It's doing a lot of research and deep thinking and working with partners, including national sport organizations, professional sports leagues, media companies, apparel companies, community foundations, health providers, you know, to trying to look for what are the strategies that can be applied to get more kids physically active because they're just not. Even before the pandemic, you know, a lot of kids were struggling And then even since it's gotten even worse in terms of the physical activity and it's gotten worse with mental health too, which is such a big challenge. You know, you're reimagining sports, school sports project. It's a part of Project Play. Why was the reasoning of Aspen Institute to pursue this project? So when Project Play started, the idea was let's start at the foundation um, of ages six to 12. And so for, for several years, that's what Project Play focused on, that give kids physical literacy and the foundational skills at early ages and then grow and grow and grow. And we always sort of knew at Project Play that we eventually would get to school sports. And that's where we're at now, because 
for many kids, they won't even play high school sports. Only about 39% of students participate in high school sports. They've been passed by sometimes long before because they lose interest, because you know sports are too difficult or not fun for them, sometimes maybe because injuries, sometimes too much pressure you know, by coaches or parents mm-hmm. or, or even themselves. But high school, though, is still that almost like that last chance, right, for yeah. for students to create those lifetime skills of, of being physically active, because we know that you are much more likely to continue to participate in some sort of physical activity when you're an adult, if you're playing sports at younger ages. And so what are strategies, what are ways to, to reinvent the high school model, which really is about a, a hundred years old. It's, you know, it's been yeah. around for over a century sort of flip it on its head a little bit and think about ways to broaden it. So we're recognizing all the students, you know, who are capable of participating, not just necessarily the ones who are competing and have the the best athletic skills. Because right now what happens is that many high schools, only those students with the sufficient skills make the team. Mm -hmm. And then these skills are often accumulated at young ages through considerable financial and time investment by families. And it leaves behind those children who can't afford those same opportunities. So if a student is not good enough to make the high school team, there are very few opportunities exist to continue playing sports. You probably then are not good enough to be on the travel team. Mm-hmm. Um, recreational local rec and parks and rec and you know in-town leagues. Some have opportunities for kids in high school. A lot don't. You know, it starts filtering out around middle school. So we really need to sort of think of high school sports and physical activity as well within the school setting, not just interscholastic teams, but clubs, intramural sports, PE in a more holistic approach. Yeah. And I think that's a, it's a good point just in general of, of promoting that lifelong physical activity. We, we know that there are many, many states now, the vast majority of states that do not have required PE through all of high school. I mean, as an example, living in Missouri, they have two credits that they have to meet out of their four years to meet their physical education credits mandated by the state. And then that's it. But neighboring Illinois has it required through all four years. And so that sports part is really important, but it, it is trying to figure out ways to get these kids interested in just physical activity in general. So I like what several of these projects did and read through these reports. There's now seven that have been published out of the eight. And we will have links in the show notes to these reports so our listeners can certainly get to them and look at them individually. And I found them really interesting. And I'd love to talk through these with you and kind of decide what exactly you guys decided to include in the report. So tell us a little bit about what types of things you include, because there's a lot of statistics and various ones in different reports, and then an idea of how these awards got determined. And actually, I I guess we didn't even talk about that. There are awards with these things that were done. So why don't you talk to us about that project? You know, in partnership with Hospital for Special Surgery, which is based in New York, Dick's Sporting Goods Foundation, and Adidas and Box for Kids, we've recognized eight different exemplary high schools across the country who are doing a great job in in increasing physical activity and sports participation and also have like innovative ideas. But the whole idea of being, okay, what can we take from these schools and model it out to others within their school type that other schools can use? So it's important to note that in each of these eight reports that we've released this year, they're different school types. And we broke them down based on the size of the school and also sort of the the demographics and the the type of community that they're in. So for instance, there's a small suburban public high school report and a large suburban high school report. There's small and large urban. There's small and large rural. There also is a category that's private schools. 
and there's a category that's just charter schools. And so uh, each of these reports, they're about they're kind of small, only about like 16 pages. And it looks at you know some of the data that we collected. We did a national survey of high school students, almost about 6,000 throughout the country in, in partnership with resident education to understand what are their sports experiences like? What sports have they played? What haven't they played? What sports do they wish their school offered? What do they think about PE? What other types of physical activities do they engage in or would they like to engage in? Why do they play sports? Why do they not play sports? Ultimately, come next March, we're going to be releasing a final report that's going to have more high level, like system level recommendations in, uh, for change for the high school sports model, in addition to insights and some of the data that we've collected over this period. Sounds great. We'll start off with going through each of these individual schools and what was found in each of these and kind of talk about some of these innovations of the winners. We're going to start with the small urban public high schools. And the winner was Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia. Their innovation was practicing in the morning to grow access. Talk to us a little bit more about this winning innovation and some of the other findings from evaluating the small urban public high schools. Yeah. So one thing that was interesting about this school was like, so you, you hear the name of them, Science Leadership Academy. They were created, I think it was around 2006. It was created entirely for academics. I mean, that was the whole idea from the school district. And they weren't even going to have any sports to begin with. And one thing uh, that the, the founder of the school told me is that the school district administration, one administrator said like, no, this is, you know, nerds don't like sports. And that totally turned out to not be true. They have like 40% of their students who are participating in sports. Now they're in Philadelphia. They've had immense challenges with their facilities and, and having access to quality play spaces. So really practicing in the morning grew out of just a, a need for, for several of these teams, like Ultimate Frisbee. I think like the softball team and the soccer teams have practiced in the morning because they didn't have fields at their own school. And it became so challenging to find facilities after school with everything else going on in the city and getting permits and be able to play. So they would do in the morning. And initially, a lot of students, some students didn't like it, right? Who wants to wake mm -hmm. up at you know, right. 5.30 in the morning for a 6.30 a.m. practice? But a lot of the students then started figuring out, actually, this gets me going, you know, early yeah. in the morning. Something that adults figure out too, right? That when you, if you exercise early in the morning, that can really help you throughout the whole day. The thing I found interesting about that and kind of the one thing that made me just a little concerned about that particular innovation is we do have obviously concerns about are those kids and those athletes going to get enough sleep in general? I mean, that's been kind of the big thing in general that's been going around with knowing our high school kids are overcommitted. They're waking up super early for school already, and then they may be burning the midnight oil trying to get their schoolwork done, and then they're not getting enough sleep, which we know increases their risk for injury in sport and then also actually affects their academics. So I'm kind of curious how they would balance that out and make that a reasonable way. Would they be, you know, I think if that, that's an innovation, that's going to be something that's going to have to kind of make sure we're addressing the sleep component of that and how important that is for these kids as well, wouldn't you think? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, that's a fair point. And that's, and that's something even that uh, some members of the school said that, yeah, there would be times, you know, kids get to school and some of them are, they're tired, right? Yeah. They're, they're, you know, that is an issue you have to educate them on getting to bed early, right? Mm -hmm. And also getting your schoolwork then done earlier. Because if you don't have that afternoon practice from say three to 6 p.m., okay, there's your time to be working on school, to be working on projects, and you can get to bed in an earlier time. But yes, it, it, it is a fair point. It, you know, there's been varying points, you know, I've, I've read, but you probably know a whole lot better as a, as a doctor, that there is some science to support that morning exercise makes students' brains better ready to learn. But there is some other research that's revealed 
that high school students, you know, sleep cycles certainly benefit by starting classes later in the day. In order oh, to yeah, it's better. a balancing act, no question. And I agree. Yeah, getting things going. I, I do appreciate an early morning exercise if if I'm motivated enough to get up <laughs> to do it. I know it definitely makes a, a big difference for me as just far as my alertness throughout the rest of the day. No question about that. Just again, getting things going, getting some focus with some physical exercise. So I, I know there's just personally, just anecdotally, that's there's definitely benefit there. But we also know scientifically that 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 is the case as well. You know, the other thing I found interesting is that you know, the statistic, 63% of urban schools offer sports, but only 33% of students play sports, which is really kind of a disappointing when looking at that kind of discrepancy there. Yeah, it is. And that's for that's for urban students in general. So that's not just the small urban. It's, you know, all urban students. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, you know, some of it comes down to what sports are offered, you know, and that just there are more funding challenges tend to be in urban schools facility space, you know, access. And then there's just responsibilities for a lot of uh, urban students. They have family responsibilities. They may have siblings they have to care for or older family members or jobs that they have to work. So it's, it's a real balancing act. Back to the morning practices, it was one thing that the athletic director who also is a coach has said that she thinks they're able to get more students participating in sports by doing morning practices because they have some of these responsibilities later in the day. Mm -hmm. They could still go home and watch their sibling you know, yeah. after school or have that job after school for a couple hours. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and again, obviously, we're going to have to, these will have to be catered towards the different things, which is great the way you guys divided these up into the small and large and then urban, suburban, charters, privates, all that kind of stuff. I think that makes a big difference because I think they'll be probably applicable to those different groups more so than, than all of them in general. Absolutely. Yep, that was our idea. We'll be back with John Solomon from the Aspen Institute after a quick break. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcaster Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, (laughs) you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. 
We are back with John Solomon from the Aspen Institute, and we are continuing our discussion about the Reimagining School Sports Project. There was a report for the small suburban high schools that just got released, and the winning innovation was from East Hampton High School in New York. The winning innovation here was engaging Latino families to increase participation. So I was intrigued by that one. So tell me a little bit more about that proposal. The winning school was East Hampton, New York High School. And you think Hamptons, okay, that's for the privileged, that's for the wealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not just that. And I I initially would have thought that as well. And then learning more about the school, that it really is a, a blue collar community. It's heavy on a lot of service jobs, you know, housekeepers, fishermen, landscapers, like a lot of communities in our country, the Hamptons Latino population has skyrocketed, you know, in, in, in recent years. Uh, it nearly doubled to about 26% between 2000 and 2010. You go back to 1990, it was only 5%. Along the way, though, that this, this community for a number of years, about a decade or so ago, really struggled as this you know, new population and new demographics were, were coming into their community because they couldn't communicate very well with the Latino population. There were several suicides um, mm. that, were, that were happening. And one thing that the school does well is, is they've hired an assistant within the athletic department who is bilingual and can take phone calls you know, with the athletic director. They have a specialist within the school district who holds meetings just with Latino parents and families to be able to communicate them about, you know, some of the courses about education, but it's also about sports opportunities. It's also mm-hmm. about, you know, translating physical forms, you know, in order to play sports into Spanish or communicate to them when tryouts happen. They also have hired more Latino coaches, particularly in, in football, which was really interesting because, you know, with football participation around the country continues to decline, you know, in, mm-hmm. in many places. Right. And East Hampton, was essentially dead in high school football a couple of years ago. They just did not have enough players. But by hiring some more Latino coaches, by being able to communicate what some of these coaches believe are the, the benefits of playing football, recognizing this, this is a violent and dangerous sport. Right? Yeah. I get that. They've been able to, to sort of save the sport and, and restart it, which is kind of unique. Yeah, no, I I mean, I think it's interesting. And I think that's obviously engaging your communities and what's going on in your communities. And I think it's just reflecting, you know, what does your coaching staff look like compared to your athletes that are participating? And I think that makes a big difference when we're talking about just having that there, because then there is some of that even just relational thing with the kids and the coaches when they come from similar backgrounds, no question. Yep. Yeah. There, there were some kids and coaches who just say that the athletes just feel more comfortable. You know, mm-hmm. re- representation really matters you yeah. know, with coaches just to be able to know, hey, someone may have experienced the exact same thing as you one day, mm-hmm. whether it's you know, even some, some, maybe it's, it's some racism. Maybe it's just your home life. Maybe it's your, your fear of not being able to speak English, you know, very well, that those connections really matter. And, you know, I think we could probably correlate the same thing for males and females. You know, I think probably a a female athlete would probably relate better to a female coach most of the time. I I mean, I would probably argue that, but may not be an all the time thing, but, but I, I don't see a reason why that wouldn't apply there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and unfortunately, only about 25% of youth sports coaches are female. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's a very low number for various reasons. And it's interesting that numbers just stayed stagnant for a long time, even despite some efforts out there to bring attention. That is interesting that it stayed stagnant. Kind of curious as to why that may be. My wife is an assistant coach for cross country and track, and I'm kind of curious as to why that number wouldn't grow. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, some of it is anecdotally. I don't think that we have great that at Aspen we have great research and data on it. Others have studied a little bit more. Some of it is is being supportive of female coaches. That's yeah. really important. Unfortunately, in our society, in many ways, the 
the female, the mother becomes the caretaker a lot of times for kids. So as you have young kids, does that become more difficult, you know, to still be a coach? So you have to have a supportive partner um, sure. at home. You have to have a supportive athletic director, you know, at school, you know, also to have, you know, some flexibility. And then there's also just sometimes I think, you know, you know, stereotypes, right. Yep. That maybe that people don't, that people don't see women as coaches and maybe sometimes women don't even see themselves as that and need to be asked and encouraged. You know, yeah. To do no, I think all great points. And I think all, all things that I, I think are probably very, very true. We'll move to private high schools. I found this one interesting in a concept, and this came from Trinity School of Durham and Chapel Hill, so North Carolina. This winning innovation was making an athletic plan for each student. So talk to me about this one. The idea is that in a lot of high schools, not necessarily all, but I think it, it definitely happens a lot in private schools, which is what you know Trinity is. You have, you have these four-year academic plans. You know, you, you start as a freshman and you sit down with someone, whether it's, you know, your guidance counselor or, or a teacher or what have you, and you sort of lay out, starting to map out what your academic plan is going to look like. What are your what are your goals? What do you hope to achieve? You know, and you keep evaluating, you know, as you go, it's, it's continually evolving. So the idea is, you know, what, what if, what if we have one of those four, four year athletic plan? You know, what if you go in and you actually have an idea and an understanding of what the student's goal is out of playing sports, not the, not the parents. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And so particularly in private schools, that, that can be a, a major issue. Parents are, you know, viewing the athletic scholarship or, or how this will, you know, participating in sports will help with your college admissions. But what if the student is able to say, this is what I want to get out of it. And you're able to actually, you know, document it and, and put it down on paper um, and mm-hmm. continue to, you know, go back to it, you know, year after year. Talking about what you just did about the parents' expectation versus kids, the statistic I found fascinating in here was the 27% of kids at private schools said that they play sports to chase a college scholarship. And I would have loved to see if the same kids' parents were surveyed and see what that statistic and that percentage would be (laughs) as far as why they put their kid in the private school. I mean, obviously, there's all sorts of reasons, but I know around here in the St. Louis area, there is a lot of drive for some of these private schools for kids to go there for the athletics and that purpose alone. Yeah, there's no um, doubt. There's no, no doubt. I would be fascinated to know if that there's a big discrepancy because then that tells us we're not listening to our kids well enough, right? And that that's a big problem. Absolutely, and 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 to uh, to add on to that, that 27 percent stat of private school students say they play sports for the the college scholarship. 42 percent of public school students said that they're they're playing it for the college scholarship. So. Yeah. So there's a, there was a pretty big difference, you know, between private and public. It could be, you know, private school students by that point are like, part of it could be maybe they're more, they are more focused on academics, you know, mm-hmm. which may tend to happen in private schools. Another part of it could be that they're, they're just done, you know, with what sure. their sports experience has already been like. Um, and they, they don't want to have that, you know, pressure anymore and that drive. And, you know, the other part of that, too, of just taking that around, if a kid's in a private school, obviously, there is going to be a financial cost. So there there may be, obviously, that financial difference for families. You know, you got a kid in a public school, and maybe their drive to get that scholarship is that much more important to them from a financial standpoint to afford college that may not necessarily be the same drive for the kid who just assumes that they're going to have their college paid for if they're at the private school. Right. That maybe. could be true. Maybe. Right. That could and, and it's worth noting the, I mean, the number one reason that private school students say that they play sports is for the exercise. 89% mm-hmm. of students acknowledge that. You could you could select more than one answer, but that was the, the top choice. And it was 77% for public school students. Mm-hmm. There was, there was, it was still high for public, but really high for private. Yeah. 
So charter schools are up next. The winner here was View Park Preparatory in Los Angeles. The innovation was called New Sport, New Insights. Can you first talk about some of the challenges faced by charter schools and then tell us how that innovation took top honors? Yeah, so ch- charter schools, unlike you know almost every other school type that we looked at, really has more significant challenges uh, related to you know the, the opportunities that are, they're able to play. Um, they're just fewer sports opportunities, often fewer facility spaces, you know, mm-hmm. and access um, for kids to play sports. They're, these usually are are um, built sometimes for academics. Like you do have some charter schools that are these sort of like um, you know academies for sports, and that they are. Uh, you know, very dominated towards the, the athletic mm-hmm. scholarship as well. Yeah. But the, it's it's a much bigger difference between the public and normal school districts and charter schools. But what was really interesting about ISEF is how much they think outside the box to be able to essentially sort of almost make sports co-curricular. Mm-hmm. It's not just extracurricular. It's, it's having these programs that in an urban setting, very urban setting, you know, almost predominantly black in, in inner city Los Angeles, they're offering things like sailing and rugby and, you know, surfing and snowboarding. It's part of their action sports programming. They take trips uh, sometimes even around the world, to different parts of the country with their, their rugby programs, which are very successful. They have to do a lot of fundraising for it. I mean, that's a that's a big part of it. But one of the key things is that they're, they're able to s- sort of not operate in silos within this charter school, which which happens quite a bit with charter schools and that. They sort of all see the the benefits that come with kids being physically active and playing sports. And so the a lot of the fundraising efforts are, you know, with people from the developmental office, not just the rugby coach or the athletic director. So it's a, it's very cohesive. I was interested in this in the sense that the different types of sports that were there and really it would look it seemed like it was more student driven just looking through the report of what really what these kids wanted to participate in and and that's and I I'd love to talk to you about that more just in general I've got I've got a specific comment later that I want to address but just in in general just you guys had in several of your reports kind of a list of sports that that kids wanted to participate in. And I think, you know, we've kind of pigeonholed a lot of our sports and it's, it's these classic sports and that's it. Those are the ones we offer at the state level. And those are the ones that you can compete in and that, and that's it. And then you may have a club sport or you may have a travel team sport, or you may have a a club sport that's associated with your school, but there's no like kind of big championships or things like that. That's there. So I found it really interesting. the, The different types and the diversity of sports that some of these charter schools were, were doing. Yeah. I mean, so like at, at Project Play, our, our number one strategy, we have like eight strategies to get kids more involved in sports is ask kids what they want. Right. Mm-hmm. And it sounds really simple, really basic. But yeah. unfortunately, a lot of adults don't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you're, they're pigeonholed to your point into, OK, these are the traditional sports. There also is in some communities, and I would say also in, in, in many times in, in urban communities, the idea of playing that traditional sport is your your ticket out and your mm-hmm. way to college education or you know pro sports where if we can flip that a little bit and also viewing one you could play some of these different sports and be exposed to it and maybe even have a better chance for a college scholarship honestly because there there may be fewer people playing it that you're competing against but two just that you are exposed to so many different people so many different cultures and rules mm-hmm. and just the ability to 
potentially play like lifetime sports. Like if you're a black child in, in inner city Los Angeles, like in Compton, like we saw with, you know, Serena and Venus Williams several decades ago, how they made tennis become a more popular sport yeah. um, for, for black kids or for a period, Tiger Woods, you know, with golf. The more we expose kids to different sports, I just think the better off we'll be. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll move on to large public schools, and we'll start with the large urban public high schools. And this this one I like, but I could see lots of pushback potentially on this one. And the winning innovation came from Harding High School in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it was meeting diverse athletes where they are at. Can you touch on that innovation? Yeah, so this is um, Harding in, uh, in, in Minnesota, and they have a, a very large population of Hmong Americans. These are Asians. Uh, they also have a large population of students who have been refugees or their families have been refugees. They've come from, in some places, very difficult situations with, with wars and famine and living in, even in, in refugee camps. They don't have a lot of money. They don't necessarily have the, the greatest resources, may not win all the, the, the championships in the world, but they recognize these cultural differences among their students and they find ways to still engage with them and even engage with their families, uh, even given, you know, these limited resources. The principal, who is a, a Hmong American, talked about how a lot of Hmong parents do have questions, you know, ab- ab- about sports, aren't necessarily certain that their child should play sports compared to academics, in part because they just don't have the, the culture or the history mm-hmm. behind it. But one thing that the, the principal said that I thought was, was, was really powerful is that she has some of these parents, okay, just, just go to one of your kids' games. Even though they don't necessarily under, understand the games, just go and see the excitement they have on the field. And a lot of these parents are working multiple jobs, very hard workers. They often don't have the flexibility to leave for a couple hours for a game. She made the point that the structure of sports needs to change some if we want more of those parents to come, particularly in high poverty urban areas, so we can integrate some of their values into high school sports as well. My comment about the pushback is is not necessarily that I thought it would be a bad thing. It's just a matter of, you know, their approach was it was doing some, again, non-traditional sports that aren't in all those categories that we had talked about just previously and trying to really kind of lift up those particular ones that those particular students were interested in. And, you know, again, I, I think it's just it's a matter of are, are we going to let the kids have their opportunity to, to do what they want to do and offer those types of things where there's interest in it? Or are we just going to, again, kind of pigeonhole them into the, the traditional sports that we all think about? Right. And so, for instance, I mean, Harding, badminton is a huge yeah. sport. Right? Yeah. I mean, badminton, right? You don't think of that that sport very much, but it's a it's a sponsored sport in Minnesota. Volleyball is is really big, and 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 even just you know flag football, even mm-hmm. they, they found was was really popular. Not tackle football because yeah. Hmong Americans tend to be smaller, right? Mm-hmm. And they may they may be just concerned and just for their for their health, but they they learned that just informally, like even outside the tackle football practices, there would be a lot of kids and, and even adults within the community just playing flag football and they'd be setting up tournaments. And it's just a, a very big tradition there in, um, in St. Paul. Some of the statistics you put in here, the one that kind of depressed me a little bit is that the one third of freshmen say they don't play sports because they aren't good enough, which yeah. just tells me we've dropped the ball by the time these kids get to high school, because we've totally given kids an impression of what sports are and it has to be highly competitive. And if you don't have the right skills, you don't belong. And that just, that crushes me when I hear that because you know, there are some really great lifelong sports that you can participate in. Like I mentioned, I was a cross country runner in high school. Cross country, 
Anybody can do that. <laughs> yep. um, my brother-in-law is a cross-country coach outside of Chicago, and I love a quote, and I, I'm pretty sure he was the one who said it. If they didn't, I'm in big trouble. But <laughs> the person who is actually the last runner on the team gets the most playing time. And I love that quote because, mm-hmm. I mean, it just puts into perspective kind of, yeah, hey, you can participate and you can do this, and we can see some significant improvements. And you don't have to be the best runner out there in order to participate in a sport like that. But you know, we've just created these kind of horrible culture, I think, with just it's got to be, you got to be on a select team. And if you're not on the select team and you're not on the travel team, then you don't belong in sports. And I, I it just, that part just crushes me. I know. I know they, they get they weeded out at, at really, really young ages. Anecdotally, my oldest son, he's now a freshman in high school. He was five years old. <laughs> this is when we used to live in Alabama, so mm-hmm. played in a very competitive T-ball league, way too competitive. <laughs> um, I mean, double elimination tournament, you know, parents arguing with umpires, delays in the game, waiting for the commissioner to come to settle disputes. And it was insane. But about a month left in the season, he said, I want to retire for baseball. Wow. And, and, and like he did, you know, and, and he only played a team sport one more time. He tried soccer, I think a, a couple years later, didn't really like that either. Did some swimming a little bit, probably more of an individual sport type person, mm-hmm. but right now really doesn't do any sports. Does walking, does biking, but I made it my mission then for my second son <laughs> to be much more involved and to better understand okay, that one really bad experience at a young age, you know, really can impact whether kids continue to play. And, you know, just turning on that, the other statistic that kind of surprised me, kind of going along those same lines is the the 35% of seniors say they don't enjoy sports. (laughs) And it was 24% of freshmen. So we've increased that over the course of their four-year high school career so what are we doing with the sports that we're making them like sports less when they leave? Right. You know, is that how we, again, I mean, there's so many factors there, how we approach the sports, maybe how the coaching or the coaching staff was to these kids that's turning them off from sports, but that's not a good flattering statistic that no. we're making these kids like sports less after they finish high school than when they went into it. Right. And to my point earlier, that's their last year. Like that's their last right. time. Like, then we're sending them off to college and, and the rest of their life. And look how how many of them don't like it. Part of it, this is just speculative because we didn't get drilled deeper into mm-hmm. you know, some questions about it. Part of it could be they, they don't enjoy it because they're not even playing it anymore. True. If you're not making your teams, you know, so it's just maybe out of sight, out of mind um, mm-hmm. for some of them. One thing that I really like to see come back, and we've mentioned this in, you know, in some of our reports, is intramural sports. Yeah. Like when I was growing up in high schools in the early to mid 1990s, intramural sports were big. Oh, yeah. Um, like that was just a great opportunity. You could still be competitive, but it's within your friends, you know, within the school setting. You don't have to travel and spend a ton of time at practices or go into games and all that. It's within your your school and it's just fun. But yeah. we've, we've gotten away from that. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I totally agree. And And again, I think it's probably where you're talking about the resources and space, because now you've got every X, Y, and Z team for the high school that needs to use that space. So there's just not that available space to do that yeah. uh, anymore. That, that may be the biggest issue why we don't see it anymore. Probably I'm sure there's something financial there too, as far as offering it or people who are willing to participate. Or, 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 or people's, right, who's who's going to run it? Whose capacity, right. whose job is it? What adult there, right? Staffing capacity too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my wife and I talked about probably a decade ago, we would love to just do like a a rec sandlot league for baseball for kids. Just, you know, again, just going back to creating everything without all the strict rules and things like that. But again, it's not who we're going to get to run it and things like that. We didn't have the power at the time to do it or the time, I should say, to do it. But boy, I just think opportunities like that, I think people would eat up. Absolutely. I agree. 
So we'll move on to large suburban public schools. And the winner came from Frederick, Maryland, from Tuscarora High School, and is called Make Intramurals and PE Co-Curricular Needs. So talk to us about this winning idea. Yeah. So that's what we were just sort of talking about, that this is pre-COVID, right? A lot of yep. us have to sort of <laughs> couch that a lot of things changed during COVID and, not, and some of these schools couldn't do all of these things, you know, the, in this past year and a half. This school really views physical activity during the school day as a co-curricular asset tied to education. They would do, you know, intramural volleyball and basketball activities and like table tennis and badminton and strength training clubs. And those all would be periodically available and they will be, I think they are again now that they've been resuming in-person school during these like daily flex periods, right? So it's a flex period where you can maybe get pulled, you know, for more academic work in a particular course, but it's also a chance where you can just go play some sports with your friends in an intramural. They also do a really good job with unified sports teams with students who have intellectual disabilities paired on teams with general student body. Uh, they have several teams related to that. And they're, they're just really terrific PE teachers, just in talking to several of the students, just of how beloved PE teachers are. And, and that's, that's a key point, I think, to really note that the, the best PE teachers they don't necessarily have the greatest curriculum, right? Or, or, mm-hmm. or teaching all the great sports and all that is, is very important, but it's the relationships. It's yep. being, being able to connect with kids in a much different way than an academic teacher would connect. It's, it's, it's just that period of the school day where kids can kind of like, you hope, can take a breath, right? Okay. And let me, let me just play and let me move my body. But we know that there are a lot of kids who are apprehensive and have anxiety about dressing out for PE, body image issues, you know, for some girls. Yeah. Um, and so it, it can be a real challenge. I want to circle back to what I was coming about before where I said I was going to circle back and touch on it. But the part where you had asked about different sports that kids really wanted to participate in. And as I was going through this and I looked at the list, the thing that struck me in every single report, which was either number one or number two is the most commonly requested sport was archery. I know. I know what you're going to say. Archery. Why archery? I don't understand that. (laughs) I don't know. We don't understand, totally understand it either. We, we need to do some more work on that and ask some questions. I, I, it, it it was interesting, you know, part of it initially, one of my thoughts was, okay, was, was this because the it was the first sport listed, you know, but, but, you know, for, for answers, but no, I was told, no, that these were randomized as as students filled it out online and they kept coming to archery and urban and rural and suburban. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It was really interesting. But apparently everybody just wants a bow and arrow. I know, right? Just be safe with it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That was just fascinating to me that that was, that was the sport. So I don't know if we need to start thinking about, we need to have more archery clubs or archery teams in school because it, that apparently the good chunk of the kids want it. Yep. Got to ask, got to ask. <laughs> if we don't ask, we don't know. Exactly. Finally, we'll end with large rural public high schools. And this one I liked a lot. And I truly see the value of a coach in the lives of kids as another adult figurehead in addition to their parent or guardian. And this came from Jennings County High School in North Vernon, Indiana. And it's called Don't Judge Coaches by Wins. So why did this idea win for the large rural public high schools? I really liked this school because they showed some courage in terms of evaluating coaches and, and really having a, an intentional approach evaluating coaches on things other than wins and losses. So a little brief backstory. The principal had told me that there were some rumors circulating that some of the school board members wanted to require all coaches to win at least 60% of their games for their contract to be renewed. Uh. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's the, it, it's not surprising to hear yeah, in some right. places, 
but you know, it's not ideal, of course. And historically, this school wins about half of its games in most sports. Football team only won 27% of its games. Only, it's only had one winning season in like 20 plus years. And so they, they cycle through up and down seasons. So anyway, the principal obviously was very worried that the approach then would be let's cut corners in order to win games if that mm-hmm. policy came into effect. And it didn't come into effect. But he ended up hiring a new athletic director a couple years ago who created a, a grid to essentially evaluate coaches on you know everything but <laughs> wins and losses. He calls it the, the deserve to win grid. And it's got 28 different areas. Some of the areas being evaluated include like creating a safe environment, increasing sports opportunities for younger kids, providing academic opportunities for athletes beyond just staying eligible, you know, to play, understanding racial and gender discrimination. That's an evaluation part of it. Demonstrating interpersonal relationships with athletes, parents, coworkers, and administrators. And they're the type of things that you kind of always hear, you know, that we, that we say coaches are judged by, but he actually put it down on paper, right? And it also sort of starts a process where it's just sort of an ongoing conversation then with coaches throughout the year. And then it's also actually there then at the end of the season where you can go back and, and really evaluate. And, and some several coaches said that it really helped them think, hey, am I really doing the best I can in this particular category, that particular category? And they've made some changes. That's good. I mean, I, and again, I, I like that approach a lot because there is something more to say than just wins because there are going to be some of those schools that just, they may be put into a conference that just, it just doesn't work and fall in their favor on a regular basis based on another school that they may be paired up with. And and there there is more than just the win that's there. So Absolutely. And, yeah. and, for, and for this school to do it, this school's in Indiana as well. Basketball yeah. hotbed, right? I oh mean, yeah. That's where, that's where it's in. Hoosier crazy, crazy, right? And, and you know, they, they did it there. They've had some success a little bit in basketball. I think girls more than boys, but it's sort of just setting the bar of, okay, here's, here's really what we stand for. Yeah. So there's one more report that still needs to be released. It's the small rural public schools. And so when should we expect the winner and report to be announced for that? Yep. So that will come out most likely December 21st in our Project Play newsletter. Yeah, we're looking forward to announcing that. And then you had mentioned earlier that next year in 2022, you'll have a, a kind of a more formalized report kind of summarizing everything. And, you know, the thing, obviously, when we get these actionable items that it's great if we get actionable items and, and things to do, but then what are we going to do to help with the buy-in and promotion of these ideas to really, truly reimagine school sports? Yeah, no, it's a great question, right? It's, it's not easy. We're not going to say that, that we're going to flip a switch, you know, overnight. With right. this. But I think, you know, what, you know, one of the big goals for this is, is aspirational and recognizing that there's not going to be necessarily universal solutions for everyone. I think that's really important that we, and that's sort of why we did the school type reports the way we did it, that there are different schools have very different needs, very different interests as well. But you know, these will be some high level, you know, recommendations and ideas that all schools can try to aspire to. We hope that it gets promoted, you know, by coaching associations, state school board associations, athletic directors, um, state high school athletic associations, people in the in the medical community as well. I think there'll be probably some, you know, health and safety recommendations potentially in there. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen overnight, but there's a feeling also that, you know, we, we've, we've had an advisory group of a lot of experts who have been part of this as well. That's important to note too, that we've had a lot of internal roundtables discussing these different school types, discussing these winners and, and helping us select winners. And there's this feeling that the, that the opportunity is now. 
in part because of COVID, mm -hmm. right? We've seen what's happened and there are schools that are that are struggling financially. There are schools that are struggling with participation. Even mm -hmm. as sports reopen, many students aren't coming back. So we have to be creative. We have to think outside the box and and reimagine what's possible. And there's another thing that's that's coming down the pike as well, and that is it's already here, and that is college athletes being able to make money off their name, image, and likeness yep. um, and, and get sponsorship and endorsement deals. And that's going to continue to trickle down some into high school sports. And there's going to be issues that they're going to have to wrestle with in terms of, you know, their policies and rules. So, you know, what better time than now to really state, okay, what, what are our values of high school sports? Is it, is it only to win games? Is it only for the, the kids who have proven to have the the highest level of skills up to this point, you know, the, the more elite athletes and we leave everyone else behind or is high school sports truly about the educational mission as we always hear mm -hmm. and that it should be enhancing some of those uh, values as well. Great stuff, John. We end our podcast with something we call the Pearl of Podcast. It's a take-home point for our listeners about our discussion today. So John, what would be your Pearl of the Podcast? Ooh, I would say... Actually listen to your child about what they want in sports. I mean, really listen, ask them questions. What do they like about sports? What do they dislike? And then hear them, really listen. I, I do that with my kids every year and they have to finish a, a sports season. They're not going to quit during the season, but if they want to try a different sport, you know, when it comes to the end of the season, let's let them. It's, it's, it's their childhood, not ours. Absolutely. And we got a perfect example of that with my my family. My oldest uh, participated in cross country and, and some in track. And then my daughter now participates in cross country as well. My middle son was just not interested in sports, but he is fabulous and fantastic in theater. And again, we just got to find kids and get their passion and not pigeonhole them into something that we want them to be as a parent and, and let them thrive. And, and I think that's all. It's really good. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. I'd like to thank John Solomon from the Aspen Institute for taking some time out of his schedule to talk with us today and be part of an initiative that really could bring about some positive change in the lives of our kids in the world of sports and exercise in general. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to these reports and be sure to check back for the upcoming report and get engaged in your local communities as thought leaders through involvement in sports as parents, coaches, and as healthcare professionals. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We thank you for your five-star reviews and please tell a friend or two about us. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.